right, church. Let's take those Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Did you notice that Paul uh, begins uh, this chapter with the word, therefore? Now, originally, the books of the Bible were not divided out into chapter and verses like we see them in our Bibles today. In fact, it wasn't until 1228 where the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, first took the Bible and divided it out into chapters. In fact, it was the Wycliffe English Bible of 1382 that first printed the Bible with those chapter divisions. Now, verses they began to be divided out much later. In fact, it was 1448 when the Old Testament was broken down with verse divisions. And it wasn't until 1551 where the New Testament was broken out with verse divisions as well. Now, when you begin to read through the Scriptures and you begin to see some things, it becomes really interesting in trying to figure out how these chapter and verse divisions actually came about? What was the the logic and the thinking behind them? Because uh, you'll notice that there are some places where there are really long chapters or or really long verses, and there's other places where there's extremely short chapters and short verses. And so what was the logic behind the actual division and the breakdown of those chapters and verses? Uh, The answer to that is I have no idea. I mean, we just look at it. it, a lot of places doesn't make sense. Uh, you look at the longest verse of the Bible. I try to ask my uh, Bible study class uh, this morning, do you know where the longest verse of the Bible is? A lot of blank faces, kind of like the looks that I'm getting right now. Would you be surprised to know that that actually comes from the book of Esther? Esther, in our English translation, has the longest verse recorded in, in the Bible. Esther chapter 8, verse number 9 in the New American Standard from which I preach and study from, uh, that verse has 81 words. 81 words. And now, for trivia's sake, for those of you that like this kind of information, I want you to know that Esther chapter 8, verse number 9, is not the longest verse of the Bible, at least not in its original language. The longest verse in the Bible in the original language would be uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse number 4. Whereas Esther 8, verse number 9, has 48 words in its original language. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 4, has 58 words. When we talk about the longest, we also have to give consideration, what's the shortest? Most people are aware that the shortest verse of the Bible is the verse that says what? Yeah, you all know that one, right? That's the easiest one to memorize, verses of the Bible. I got mine down. Luke chapter 11, verse number 35, Jesus wept. However, for trivia's sake, in the original language, that is not the shortest verse of the Bible. In fact, the shortest verse in the Bible in the original language is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 16. Our Bible is translated as rejoice always or rejoice continuously. In the original language, John 
11.35, the two words are made up of 16 Greek letters. The reference in Thessalonians is two words that are made up of 14 Greek letters. So that's the shortest verse in the Scriptures. As you read through the Word, you'll begin to see how sometimes uh, verse divisions and chapter divisions uh, occur mid-thought or they just seem to be so poorly placed. For me, as I'm reading through the Scriptures, I have a tendency to associate new chapters with new thoughts or a, a, a new section or something. But that's not what happens often. In fact, like I said, the first word in chapter 5 is the word, therefore. So, so this is surprising that we would begin a chapter with the word, therefore, because we should always pay close attention when you see therefore in the text, because to understand the therefore, you've got to back up and read the previous content. So that what's happening here in chapter 5 is Paul is drawing a conclusion to some evidence that he's just presented previously, primarily in chapters 3 and 4. And so he's bringing a, a conclusion of that evidence in chapter 5, and he does so with the introduction with the word, therefore. That's the transition. So the therefore, in the previous chapters, Paul has expressed that as believers, we receive our justification by faith. Now the conclusion that he's going to make is he's going to introduce some of the results of that justification or the benefits that come along with us having been justified by faith. Now before we look at some of the results or the the benefits of justification, I think it's proper that we take a moment to make sure that we fully understand justification. This is a theme that we keep on coming back to week after week. If we're not careful, some of us might have the, the tendency to automatically begin to just kind of check out right now because here's another message on justification. Like, how, how many times do we have to keep on going back to a message on justification? It's like the same theme over and over and over. I mean, can we just move on? I know some of you are thinking that. I can tell by the looks on your face. Like justification, again, really? My answer is yes, really. Again, can we just move on? No, we can't. Surely by now we all get it. Well, apparently, no, we don't get it. How do I know that we don't get it? Because I know that in this room, there are countless individuals that, that are struggling with unconfessed sin. This room is littered full of people that have uncommitted lives, unbent knees and prayers, unread Bibles. Can we just move on? No, we can't. No, we won't. Because we just don't get it. How many of us are sitting here in this moment with an unforgiving spirit towards someone? Unbroken heart over our sin. Uncommitted lives to, to fully proclaim the gospel in our community. 
Do we not realize that the purpose of the spiritual leadership of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 4, was to equip the saints for works of service? So how many people in this room would, would be honest enough to say, I don't even know what my ministry is that God's called me to and equipped me for? Can we just move on? No, we can't. Well, I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, man, are you, are, you, are you talking about me this morning? Yes. I am. If it applies to you, then I'm talking to you. Because we've got to understand the true significance of justification. My, my prayer for today has been that God would, would take this moment of our gathering, that God would, would allow me as His servant and allow His Word and allow the Holy Spirit, all three working together today to encourage us to pursue a different way of living than what we've been doing in the past. I pray that He would radically change our hearts and our lives today. And I hope that that's your desire as well. Justification. Before we get into our text this morning, I want to just look at a couple of major thoughts about justification. These are things that we've covered over the previous weeks, but it's important for us to understand what we're dealing with this morning. So the first thought, it would be why justification is even necessary in the first place. Why justification is necessary. And justification is necessary because of our sin and our alienation from God. The truth of the matter is, is that we have all rebelled against God. We all have a tendency to live our lives as we desire. Our sin has separated us and alienated us from God. And not only that, our sin has made us an enemy of God. So justification is necessary because of the anger and the wrath of God. Scripture tells us in Psalm chapter 7, verse number 11, that God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. (laughs) Make no mistake that sin has aroused the anger of God and will bring about the wrath of God. God. God is angry over our rebellion. God is angry over our hostility towards Him. He is angry over ungodliness and unrighteousness. He is angry over wickedness and sin. And so because of sin, we have a broken relationship with God. Therefore, the greatest desire in a person's life is to discover the answer to the question and how can this relationship be restored? And so we, we give consideration of why justification is necessary. Uh, major truth uh, number two is, or the thought is, why does God justify? Why God justifies? God justifies a person because of His Son, Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus, God takes that person's faith and He counts it and credits it as righteousness. And then this person's not righteous on their own, but God considers and credits their faith as being righteousness. So the question becomes, why does God do this? Why is God willing to do this? And the answer is, God's willing to justify someone, because, first of all, because of His great love. 
Because of His great love. God loves us so much that He sent His Son into this world and He sacrificed Him in order to make a means of justification possible. Scripture tells us that. We all know the Scriptures. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Next week we'll get to Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. But there it says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God is willing to offer justification because of His great love. Number two would be God's willing to offer justification because of what His Son Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Jesus has secured the ideal righteousness for man. He came to earth to live a a sinless, perfect life. Think about that. As man, Jesus never broke the law of God. As man, Jesus never went contrary to to the will of God. Not even once. And so, Jesus stands before God and before us as the ideal man. The perfect man. The perfect demonstration of righteousness. And so the reality is that Jesus came to dwell among us to live as that perfect example and then to ultimately to die for us. And as the ideal man, or as the perfect man, or as the perfect righteousness, only Jesus could take the sins upon the, of the world upon Himself at the cross of Calvary. And so how could His death stand for everyone? It stands for everyone because Jesus exchanged places for our sin. That's why Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. He he, he took on the condemnation for everyone who believes. Again, he was able to do this only because he was the ideal man, the perfect man. And so because he was the perfect man, then his death could stand for everyone. And so when someone believes in Jesus, when they put their faith and trust in Jesus, then God takes that person's belief and He counts it as righteousness. In other words, He takes that person's belief and He counts that person as being righteous in Christ. Not only does he take their faith and he credits it as righteousness, he also counts it as the death of Jesus. That person is considered to have already died in Jesus. Have already paid the penalty of sin through the death of our Lord. That's why John 3.16 says that they have eternal life. Not that we will possess it one day, is that we're currently possessing it today. We've stepped over from the temporary and entered into the eternal, and that is life with the Father based upon our faith and trust in His Son. 
And so God takes that person's faith and he credits it as righteousness. So why justification is necessary. We see why God justifies. And then we have to consider how does God justify. And that word justify, like let's back up here. That word justify is a legal word that's taken from the court system. It pictures somebody being on trial before God. That person is being uh, viewed as having committed the most heinous offense, the worst of all crimes. What is that crime? They rebelled against God. They're in enmity with the Father. They have a broken relationship with God. They're actually not His friend, but His enemy. So how can that relationship be restored? Well, we understand things like within the human courts, if, if someone is acquitted, they're declared innocent. But that's not true within the divine court. When someone appears before God, they are anything but innocent. They know it. God knows it. Everybody else knows it. And that's uh, ultimately, that's the essence of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. That we're all unworthy. We all stand condemned before God because of our sin and alienation from Him. But when someone takes their faith and they place it in the Son, God takes that person's faith and He counts it as the righteousness of Jesus. Which means that God counts that person. He judges that person. He treats that person as though they were innocent. The person is not made innocent. They're guilty. But God treats them as innocent. So our justification is not simply the guarantee of heaven some point in the future. As wonderful as that is, right? But there's more to it. Justification is also a source of tremendous blessings in our lives right here and right now. And so, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, there we find some of the most detailed theological discussion of both what it means to be justified or how we are justified and and, and what the result or the benefits of that justification. We're going to see two major sections in these 11 verses. In verses 1 through 5, the text that we'll deal with this morning, we will see what the result is of our justification or what the benefits are of justification. And the benefits we're talking about right here and right now. Next week, as we gather, we'll, we'll break down uh, verses 6 through 11, and there we'll see how God accomplishes justification. But for this morning, chapter 5, verse number 1, we begin with understanding the benefits or the results of justification. The first benefit of justification is peace with God. Verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the verb translated we have is in the present tense. It's indicating something that is already in the possession of the one who believes. 
So peace with God is established the moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't you understand that the the peace that Paul is speaking about here is is not subjective, it's objective. Or in other words, it's not a feeling, it's a fact. Apart from salvation through Jesus Christ, every human being is at enmity with God. That means that they are spiritually at war with Him. So in the same way, the person who is justified by faith is the person who is at peace with the Father. No longer, no longer spiritually at war with Him. And so the first result of our justification is peace with God. And peace is a word that is rich with meaning. To have peace with God ultimately means to to be in a relationship with God, one in which all the hostility that has been caused by our sin, uh, that relationship, all that hostility has been removed. To be at peace with God means that we are no longer under the wrath of God. The only way that we can experience that kind of peace is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So our Savior, besides Him being the agent of peace in our lives, is also the one, according to verse number 2, that says, through whom we also, I'm sorry, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. She knows that the second benefit of justification is access into the grace of God. Grace ultimately means the unmerited or undeserved gift or favor of God. In the present passage, I want you to see, and hopefully it'll make sense, that here, grace is looked upon as being a place or a position. Grace is a a place to which we are are brought. It is a position uh, to which we are placed. In other words, grace is the place of God's presence. Grace is the position of our salvation. So the one who's been justified is the one who stands in the presence of God. Who stands before God having been redeemed by the Savior. This is the one who who stands as co-heirs or joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It is the one who stands in the promise of God. I want you to notice that it is only through Christ that we have access into this grace and that access is being described to us uh, through that word introduction introduction it says through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand the word introduction means to to bring to it means to to move towards or to be presented to. The thought here is that of being in a, in a royal court and being presented or introduced to the king of kings, this term is 
found here, and the only other place that it's found in Scripture is the book of Ephesians. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 18, it says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. And then in chapter 3, verse number 12, it says, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Scripture is telling us is that Jesus is the one who throws open the door into the presence of God. And He is the one, and He is the only one that can present us to the, the, the Heavenly Father. And so to understand how Jesus grants us immediate access to the King of Kings, then we need to go back to the beginning. And when you go back to the beginning to see how that immediate access was removed from our lives. And so to go back to the beginning is to go back to the story of Adam and Eve. We know how they sinned against God. We know that God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Which ultimately resulted in them no longer having immediate access to the presence of God. Then as we read through the Scriptures, we see that after God made a covenant with Abraham, and then after He renewed that covenant with with Moses at Mount Sinai, God promised that He would dwell within the midst of His people in in the tabernacle. That was the temporary structure. And then He moved to the permanent structure of dwelling within the midst of His people within the temple. But even then, Jews and Gentiles were restricted by a series of walls or courtyards and they were limited in just how close they could get to the presence of God. Not just Jews and Gentiles, the priests themselves. The priests were kept away from from God's presence and God's presence was thought to dwell in the Holy of Holies, the, 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 the inner room inside the holy place, inside the temple And even the priests were were restricted and they were limited to their access into the presence of God. But a most glorious thing happens at the death of our Lord. Luke chapter 23 reveals how the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies records how it was torn. In Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 45, it says... It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. Then it says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We'll come back to that in a moment. But not only that, we broke down the walls. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So the veil was torn in two, and the dividing wall was broken down, was destroyed. See, Jesus brings peace by, by breaking down or by removing the dividing wall that exists between God and mankind. 
This is a picture that's taken from the temple. I, I really should have included a picture of the temple, but maybe your Bibles are good enough or in the backs of your Bible, you might be able to find a, a picture of the temple layout there. Well, let me just kind of describe what's happening. The temple itself was surrounded by a series of courts. And what would you'd have is that each court would have a high wall that separated it from the preceding court. And so the first place that, that one would enter as they're approaching the temple would be the outer court of the Gentiles. This is the place where there would be the buying and selling of animals. This is where uh, the money, the temple money would be exchanged. That was within the court of Gentiles. Then beyond that, there was what was referred to as the court of women. Jewish women were limited to this court unless they came to, to make a sacrifice. So you have the court of Gentiles, then you have the separation, then you have the court of women, and then the next court would be the court of the Israelites. This is the place where the, the whole congregation would gather on the great feast festivals. And this is the place where, where sacrifices were handed over to the priest. And so... The next court, as you go beyond the court of the Israelites, would be the court of priests. This area was considered to be sacred. This was only accept, accessible to the service of priests. This court is where the temple proper stood. So finally, within the very heart of this court and within this temple was the Holy of Holies. This was the most holy place. This is the place where the very presence of God dwelt. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, but the high priest couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies at any time he wanted to have an audience with God. No, even then the high priest was restricted, was limited to one day out of the year. And even in that one day out of the year, there was a lot of ceremony that had to happen prior to the high priest entering beyond that veil into the presence of God. And so what we have is wall after wall that separated people from the presence of God. Even so, that there were tablets that were hung on the walls of the outer court of Gentiles warning the Gentiles, don't go any further because if you do, then you will die. You'll be put to death. Within the temple, that massive veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And that veil hung there until the hour of the death of our Lord when that veil was ripped from top to bottom. At that moment, the barrier between God and man was removed. The sin of man was now fully and finally atoned for. And those who are justified by faith are able to come into the very presence of God. And now we can equally access the Father through His Son. That's a beautiful reality. Sometimes I don't think that we understand the true benefit of what we have as believers in Jesus Christ. 
the first result of our justification is peace with God. The second result of justification is access into the grace of God. Back to verse number 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So the third result of justification is hope. Hope of the glory of God. When the Bible speaks of, of our hope, it does not mean what the world means when the world speaks and uses the term hope. See, the hope of the world is a desire. It's a want. The world wants or desires for something to happen. See, see, their focus is, is on an uncertainty. So they're hoping and they're desiring for that uncertainty to become real in their lives. But this is not the hope of the believer. The hope of the believer is perfect assurance, confidence, knowledge that God is who He says He is and that He will accomplish what He promises to accomplish. That's our hope. Our hope is rooted in the Word of God. And so how can our hope be so absolute and so assured? It's by an inward possession in which we have. Our hope is based upon the presence of of God's Spirit who who dwells within those who believe. Because our human understanding is limited and it's imperfect, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend the wonder and the magnitude of the glory of God. But nevertheless, we have assurance from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit reminds us and reveals that assurance unto us that we have assurance that one day we will partake of the divine glory of God. That we get to behold His glory. And not only do we get to behold His glory, we actually get to partake of His glory. That's what Scripture tells us. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This concept of our glorification in part begins right here and right now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. To the glory of His own divine holiness and perfection will radiate in us and through us throughout all eternity. What a beautiful thing that occurs with our justification. Because we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, we have peace with God. We have access to into the grace of God. And we have hope. But Paul's not done. He's not finished. There's more. Look at verse number 3. Verse number 3 says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the fourth result of our justification is our ability to exalt in our tribulations. Exalting in tribulations. The word exalt is the same word that's used in verse number 2. It carries with it the idea of jubilation, excitement, rejoicing. So in addition to exalting in the certain hope of the glory of God, we're also called to exalt in our tribulations. Now, tribulations has the underlying meaning of being under a great amount of pressure. This term is the term that's used to describe the process of of squeezing oils to extract, or squeezing olives to extract the oil, or pressing grapes to extract the juice. So, So the tribulations to which Paul is speaking of is not... The, the common troubles that are faced by everyone. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's referring to the troubles, the tribulations that, that we face as believers because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the less attractive promises that the Bible offers to those that believe in Jesus is the promise that those who believe in Jesus and who are faithful in following Jesus will face persecution. It's a promise that we don't tend to want to embrace, but it's a reality. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12, Says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The promise. And so, with that understanding of what's to come for those who desire, right, for those who desire to live godly, with that understanding, then we should be able to rejoice in our tribulations. We rejoice in our tribulations because those tribulations or those hardships serve as evidence of our faithful living for the glory of God. And that in and of itself is is blessed and rewarded. The Christians should also rejoice because of the, the great benefits that come with tribulation. And Paul points those benefits out to us in this text. It says tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance is the idea of endurance. It's the ability to continue on in the face of strong opposition and of great obstacles. So so tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. Proven character simply means proof. It's the evidence. In the present context, It's the proof or the evidence that our proclamation to be a Christ follower is a true and genuine proclamation. So tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance is the proof. It's proven character. And proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. See, for the believer, tribulations work for them rather than against them. As believers suffer, For the cause of Christ, they develop perseverance. And that development of perseverance 
kind of deepens their character. And a deeper, proven character results in in our hope or our confidence that, that God will see us through whatever it is that He's led us to. And, and so a believer's hope, since it's centered on God and His promise, text says our hope does not disappoint. And the reason why this hope does not disappoint is because that God has poured out His love into our hearts. That's what the text says. That is the Holy Spirit who has filled our hearts with God's love and who continues to encourage us with the hope that we have in God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, and he says it this way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now, with that in mind, looking back to verse number 4. Look back at verse number 4. Notice that the love of God has been poured out within our heart through the Holy Spirit who was given unto us. The Holy Spirit enters our hearts in our lives at the moment of our justification for the very purpose of sealing our faith and guaranteeing us. He seals or guarantees our justification. He seals the fact that God loves us, cares for us, and He looks after us. It is because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that we can have a continuous and unbroken experience of God's love. And that is a tremendous blessing in our lives. Only the person who has been justified by faith can experience both the love of God and can have peace with God. So, final challenge charge to you is are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with Him? You're either an enemy of God or you're a child of God. And the only way to become a child of God is through faith and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you haven't submitted and you surrendered your life unto the Savior, then you have no peace. You are the enemy of God. And then beyond that, if you belong to Him, how is that fellowship being developed and strengthened in your life? A Bible study that meets on Sunday mornings, we're going through a great study about how to study the Scriptures and how to have a proper value upon the Word of God. And what's so amazing to me that through this process we begin to see the results of what happens when we don't spend the appropriate time in studying the Word of God. But it's not just about reading God's Word. That's a good thing to do. Don't misunderstand me. But you can read His Word every day and never have a change of experience or change of attitude or change of anything. Reading His Word isn't enough. 
studying his word. It's not enough either. It is the reading of his word. It is the studying of his word so that you can understand his word. And then the key comes in on rightly applying his word into our lives. So I asked the question to my class this morning. And it was, where do you think the church is most weak today? Is it in reading and studying the word? Is it in understanding the word? Or is it in doing the word? Overwhelmingly, the initial response would be, it's the doing of his word. And my response to that is, no, it's not. I actually think it's the understanding of his word. Because when you truly understand who we are and who God is, when you truly understand what it is that he's called us to do, then you will do exactly that. Because you're living in response to what you know and understand to be true. So as believers, right, we need to study his word. We need to understand his word so that we can rightly apply it to our lives. Come on, it's not that hard to look around in our community today to realize just how desperate our community is for a uh, the life-changing awareness or presence that, that God can bring into them through faith in Jesus. I mean, are we in a mess or what, right? Like, to see the things that are happening within our culture today doesn't make a whole lot of sense other than it makes a whole lot of sense understanding that a depraved mind will choose, chase after things that are wicked and impure. But we who know, right? We who know the truth, we who have experienced the truth, we who know God's love for us, who have experienced his love in our lives, who are aware of what he's called us to do, why is it that we are so unwilling to do whatever is necessary to take the gospel and share with other people? Why is it? Why is it that we can be faithful to attend, but unfaithful in actual serve? I don't understand. I don't have the answer. All I know is that it grieves me and it breaks my heart to know that there's so much more that we could be doing for the kingdom of God. And it's not just about being doers only. I'm not... I'm not trying to measure righteousness and faithfulness by the acts of things that are done. Look, that's a problem that Pharisees got into. Made a whole bunch of lists of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you're doing everything on the checklist, then you're good. Oh, that's not, that's not true. You could do a whole bunch of good things and not really even be good because Scripture tells us in Romans that no one does good on their own. Like, do you get it? You understand why it's so important for us to walk through this like there's a great reality that begins to unfold later in, in romans about how we're supposed to live right here and right now what this blessing means but we can't understand the true significance of that if we don't have the foundation of what paul's trying to instruct to us today that foundation is critical for our understanding apart from god we're wicked it's in never we'll never choose him we'll never chase after him We'll never have a desire to, to do anything good, holy, or righteous. And in his great love, he sent his son. That's a perfect example for us. 
to die on the cross on our behalf to make the means of justification possible that whosoever believes in Him, no longer do we stand as the enemy of God, but now become His child, join heirs with the Savior. And we have beautiful blessings, not only that are awaiting for us in eternity, but they're available for us right here, right now. Peace with God, access into the grace of God. Do you believe? And if you believe, are you walking rightly with our Father today? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just help us to be real and to be honest today. And I pray that we would stop pretending that we would just pursue authenticity. Father, in this room, no mistake, there are people who are separated from you, alienated from you because of sin. Under your wrath, they're in enmity with you. Father, I pray that it would be your will that your spirit would quicken their spirit, that they would submit and surrender their lives unto you. For the believers in this place, Father, would you please make known unto us decisions that must be made, commitments to be embraced, sins to be confessed, action steps to be taken, whatever is needed and necessary in order for us to live a life that fully, completely honors and glorifies you. As we worship through singing and reflecting and responding upon your word, I pray that you would receive the ultimate glory that you are due and that you deserve. We ask your blessings upon this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.